Welcome to Write Now with Scrivener, where writers talk about how they work, how they develop their ideas, and how they use Scrivener, the app built for long-form writing projects. I'm your host, Kirk McElhern, author of Take Control of Scrivener. Twas Brillig and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borogoves and the momraths outgrabe. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jubjub bird and shun the frumious bandersnatch. This is my mic check. I'll keep going through the entire poem if you don't stop me. <laughs> Today I'm very happy to welcome Mary Robinette Kowal. She is an author of more than a dozen novels. She owns more than a dozen typewriters, and she is a professional puppeteer. Mary Robinette, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. You have some interesting qualifications there. We'll talk about the typewriters <laughs> later, but professional puppeteer. Tell me about that. Yeah. So um, I was one of those kids who wanted to do everything. And when I was in college, I was doing a production of Little Shop of Horrors um, with a giant man-eating plant, which I was performing. And at the end of the show, a professional puppeteer came up to see me. And I was like, wait a minute, someone will give you money to do this? <laughs> and basically uh, changed career choices on the spot. I did that for about 20 years, mostly touring, a little bit of film and television, um, and, uh, and it was one of the most joyful things I've, I've ever had as a career. Um, and then writing started to take off about the same time that we moved. And because I mostly did live theater, uh, breaking into a new market was challenging. And, um, and I decided to concentrate on the writing, but I, I miss puppetry as a full-time occupation, kind of constantly. Do you still practice it at all? Mm -hmm. I do. I was still doing it up until the pandemic, and that um, kind of shut a lot of things down. So I haven't performed for money in about a year, uh, but I pull the puppet out. Um, I, I like to keep my hand in. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find that that informs your writing in the sense that you're making a character act and uh, I assume you're doing a voice as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, one of the things that I have an advantage over other people is that I have 20 years of working with an audience and seeing how they react to body language, um, character, all of that. And I do find that everybody has some expansion pack from whatever they did before they started writing. It's, it's a lens that allows them a, a unique entry point into writing. Mine just happens to be puppetry, but it's, it's a lot of things like, uh, one of the, there, there are four basic principles that bring a character to life. It's, uh, focus, breath, muscle, and meaningful movement. And so focus is what they notice. It's the same thing on the page. What your character notices and pays attention to, those are the things that indicate what they're thinking about. So focus indicates thought, breath indicates emotion. On the page, breath is um, basically replicated by your, your punctu uh, punctuation. Writing developed to convey the spoken language and the punctuation is the way we encode our pauses. And, uh, and so you can manipulate that, uh, not only in the language of the character, but also in the language of the narration to indicate kind of something about the mood of the piece. Uh, breath and rhythm are closely related. So the, the longer a character lingers on something, 
the the longer they're thinking about it, the more emotionally invested they are in it. And in writing, it's kind of like, well, if I if I need to do description, uh, narrative description, I look for the natural pauses in the in the flow of a scene in the conversation as places to put that description to to give more more breath to the moment. But it's stuff like that. That's interesting because in my journalism, if I ever run my articles through a grammar checker, one of these online grammar checkers, they take out a whole bunch of commas and they put in a whole bunch of commas. And I like to use more commas. I think it's because I'm a real big fan of Henry James and he was big on commas and long sentences. But I tend to use commas because I like the way language pauses. I, yeah. I don't like things to just keep going on and on. Yeah. I, my feeling on grammar is that grammar is a way of encoding uh, natural, natural rhythms for people who don't get it. You know, it's like someone wanted a rule and so someone made up a rule. And then other people were like, well, now we have a rule, so we have to follow the rule. But that's not actually how language works. That's not how communication works. The sentence that I just did, wildly grammatically incorrect, but it is communicative. And that's the thing I'm looking for on the page. If you think that's bad, I lived in France for almost 30 years. They have an academy that makes rules and tries to enforce them yeah. to tell you how to say things. Yes, this is why I do not speak French. <laughs> so you have won Hugo and Nebula Awards and all sorts of other awards. This is, you've been doing this for about 20 years, is that it? Writing. Uh, A dozen novels? Wow, I hadn't done the math. Uh, yes. Yeah, no, that's correct. Yeah, that that is correct. Oh, boy, that's uh, those are numbers. <laughs> it I adds up about. after a while. I mean, I've, I've talked to writers who've written two dozen books, and yeah, it's sure. How do you do it? One book after the other, right? And then after a while, if you stop and look back, it does make a long period of time, a long career. Mm -hmm. It does. It really does. Why science fiction in particular? Well, science fiction and fantasy. It's what I read. Um, it's, I read it because I love it. I love the way it takes the natural world and tips it on the side so you can kind of see the, the interstitial pieces. I like the way it invites the reader to have a conversation. Much like puppetry, uh, science fiction and fantasy has metaphor built into it. And, and I like that additional expressive freedom. And also, like, dragons and spaceships are cool. <laughs> They are. I want to talk about your latest novel. And, and I find it interesting when I read people talking about fiction, saying that the first line of a novel is the most important. And in your novel, The Spare Man, the first line is a recipe for a martini. Uh, that is correct. Um, so it is a riff on the Thin Man movies. And uh, one of the things in in the Thin Man movie with um, with William Powell and Myrna Loy which I, I adore these films is when you meet Nick Charles, he's making a martini. Like that is the first action of the character on the screen. And so I, and they drink like constantly all the way through. So I wanted to kind of get that, that vibe into, into the story. So I, I decided to start each chapter with a cocktail recipe and uh and and that kind of helps set the tone i think uh, plus there were, like there were so many good cocktail recipes out there like corpse survivor number 3 but i wanted to start with the martini because of the as a nod to the the film 
So I, I have to admit, my hobby during lockdown was mixology. Mm -hmm, same. <laughs> so I really found this interesting reading all these cocktails that are just so familiar. Mm -hmm. Just going back to the Thin Man, if I'm not mistaken, the very beginning of the first Thin Man movie is that one where William Powell is talking to the bartender in a bar explaining how to mix. And I read something about this recently. That scene was improvised. He didn't know that they were shooting. Yeah, I just heard that too. And um, I also heard that he, when he found out that they were shooting, he was like, let me do it again so I can do it better. And that the director was like, no, this was perfect. And when Myrna Loy comes in, he's sitting at a table and he's got a martini and she gets a martini. No, she says, what's he drinking? And he says, I'm on my sixth martini. So she says to the waiter, bring me five more or something like that. It's true that I guess at that time, post-prohibition, it was a sort of liberation. I really like one line early in the novel where you say it was the spouse of the protagonist, Tesla Crane, who says, I'm just glad you convinced me that the portable bar kit is medicinal. And yeah. that just totally feels like the Thin Man stories. And you've got a dog yep. aptly named Gimlet, mm -hmm. a little tiny dog. Do a lot of people, I mean, this is movies that are 80, 90 years old. Do a lot of people still know them? In in the mystery community, people still know and adore those films. So, so it's... It depends on who you're talking to. But yeah, the, those films are, appear to be evergreen. A lot of people don't know that there are six of them. Um, well, but, the first three are really good. And then after that... Yeah, and then the uh, the post-war one. Uh, but I think the sixth one is actually really good. It's The Thin Man Goes Home is the one that I'm just like, no, this is, did not need to be made. And I'm watching it only because... I love these two actors. So let's talk about this novel. I'll read briefly from the description. Tesla Crane, a brilliant inventor and heiress, is on her honeymoon on an interplanetary space liner, cruising between the moon and Mars. And something goes on. Someone gets murdered. Her spouse is arrested. And the first thing is Tesla. Why did you choose the name Tesla? That's a kind of a loaded word today. It was not loaded when I was... <laughs> I'm sure the, you were thinking of the Nikolai Tesla yeah, and not the other one. Yeah, I was thinking of Nikolai Tesla and the uh, recent shenanigans with uh, Twitter. My ex um, is uh, have have made me like mm, I would have chosen a different name, maybe. But um, but it's also like she is the daughter of an inventor. It seemed appropriate. Yeah. So this is, in a way, it's a locked room mystery, right? There's a murder mm -hmm. on a ship. It's kind of Thin Man, Agatha Christie, that sort of thing. That doesn't sound like science fiction, but I guess science fiction is the angle you can add to any mystery to make it more interesting, right? That's right. So I think of genre as being in two basic categories. You've got aesthetically driven genres and you've got structure driven genres. So a structure driven genre is something like romance or mystery. And aesthetic-driven genre is something like fantasy, science fiction, historical. So the thing that's lovely is that you can layer aesthetic and structure without any problems at all. So, um, like, science fiction does not inherently have a structure. And there's a lot of science fiction murder mysteries out there. Uh, Asimov was doing it way back in the day with, uh, with uh, Caves of Steel. Sorry, I'm just... Brain completely did not give me the name of the, the uh, character. But the Caves of Steel, th those are science fiction murder mysteries. So um, I, I think it's been around for ages. You can argue 
and I, I, I will, um, that James Bond is science fiction. Uh, it's a science fiction thriller. Like all of those devices that Q makes for him, that those don't exist and can't exist. So, um, so the, those things, they, they layer very nicely. Sometimes the driver is the, uh, the sense of wonder that's from coming from the science fiction. Sometimes the driver is the, the mystery. Uh, and sometimes they are more or less evenly balanced. Reading this novel, it feels like you had fun writing it. I did. <laughs> Sometimes you can tell in a novel when the author's been too serious or when the author's really just letting go. How does this compare to writing your other books? I have fun with those too, but it's a different kind of fun. This one gave me a lot more license to be silly, uh, which I... Like when I'm writing Calculating Stars, which is, you know, Apollo era science fiction, it's not, there, there's some silliness in it, but there's not a lot. Uh, this, this was, uh, as you say, uh, letting go. It was really just like, yeah, yeah, this is based on a murder comedy. So you can be, you can be ridiculous. Are you planning a series around this with these characters? They seem to lend themselves to it. Uh, I will definitely do short stories with them. Whether or not there are additional novels is entirely dependent on sales and my publisher. I have two more novels planned in my head, but have not done any work on them because, uh, because who knows? <laughs> well, this one's been nominated for the Hugo Award this year, and that's pretty high praise. So it seems like a lot of people like it. It, I am excited uh, by that nomination. Um, it feels very validating that I'm like, I think people would like The Thin Man in Space. Um, but again, like you can get something that's nominated for the Hugo and uh, and then the author never writes anything again, um, or they do, but no one buys it. So uh, awards are lovely. Um, I am deeply honored by the nomination, but I don't take it as... Uh, as, as any kind of indicator of what will happen next with this. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about how you use Scrivener. Literature and Latte are proud to be long-term sponsors of NaNoWriMo. Completing a 50,000-word draft in just one month is hard, but picking the right app for the job will help you reach your goal. Tailor-made for long-writing projects, Scrivener is the go-to app for NaNoWriMo, combining all the tools you need to get writing and keep writing through November and after. Scrivener is available for Mac, Windows, iPad, and iPhone, and we offer an extended 45-day NaNoWriMo trial for the Mac and Windows versions. Look for it in the Sponsor Offers section of the NaNoWriMo forum. All those taking part can get a 20% discount on Scrivener for Mac or Windows using the code NaNoWriMo23 from October 15 through December 7. That's NaNoWriMo23. NaNoWriMo winners will get 50% off once their win is verified. We wish you the best of luck in reaching your goal this year. So before we get to Scribner, I want to talk to you about your more than a dozen manual typewriters. Do you type your novels and then put them into Scribner, or are you just a collector? I am mostly a collector. When I use the, the typewriters, it will be for short stories um, or to kind of break up the pace if I just need to change things up. Uh, sometimes I'll start. I've started one novel on a typewriter. What I find is that uh, the the rhythms of the typewriter are fundamentally different than when writing on the computer. 
And and this is true, like when you go from longhand to computer to, you know, anytime you shift where the composition happens bases, is based on kind of the speed and mechanics of the, the tool that you're using. So with a computer, when I'm keyboarding, I can type almost as fast as I'm thinking. Not quite, but it's most of my composition is happening. Like it'll hit the page and I'm like, oh, let me back up and fix that and then go ahead. With a typewriter, because you have to do a carriage return at the end of each line, some of the composition is happening in my head as that carriage return is happening. And then some of it is happening as I'm switching from one page to the next. Sometimes it interrupts the flow when I have to switch, and sometimes it gives me time to think about where what's happening next. Uh, longhand, the same thing. I write much slower than I think. So a lot of the composition is happening in my head. I tend to have longer and more complex sentences when I'm going longhand, but my scenic structure tends to be a, a much more of a hot mess because I can't read back and um, and I'm writing so much slower that I'm, I'm not able to hold as much of the scene in my head as, as I can when I'm using a keyboard. It's interesting. I don't think most people think about that. They think that I'm going to write longhand because it's cool to do it in analog or because I don't want to use a computer. But they don't necessarily think what that means for the way they're writing. And once again, as a fan of Henry James, it was very interesting when I found out that Henry James's later style developed at some point in the writing of what Maisie knew when he started dictating to a secretary. Yeah. And then he had these long, sinuous sentences, but he also really enjoyed the sort of tap a tap of the typewriter. He enjoyed the rhythm of that sound. Yeah, it is. I have a friend who dictates. He go the way he writes is he goes on a walk with a tape recorder and then he sends it to a transcriptionist who types it up for him. And then he does his next pass on on a computer and i like i as much as i use voice to text when i'm talking you know sending messages the idea of doing that is like my my style would shift so fundamentally that i don't I, i've tried it once or twice uh not recently but it's it, it has just been frustrating and some of that frustration may also honestly be that writing science fiction and fantasy, there are frequently weird jargon words that that voice to text is just like, what? Well, you're also a voice actor and you narrate audiobooks, your own books and books of others. So for you, that kind of speaking represents a different task, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's very much the case. It's very much the case. The idea of doing it without voices, it's just weird. How does it feel when you're recording audiobooks, particularly your own audiobooks, and you can actually voice the characters with the inflections that you want? So I always read my stuff aloud before as part of my editing process. And one of the reasons that I do that is that when I do character voices, I will catch things on the page. It's like, oh, those rhythms are wrong for this character. The other reason that I do it is that you always, always catch mistakes. It doesn't matter. I don't care how many times something has been proofread, you will catch mistakes when you're narrating it in the booth. So the difference between reading it aloud and narrating it is that reading aloud is more or less one go, and then I'll pause when there's something drastically, or you know, something wrong that I just want to fix. When I'm narrating, we are stopping every time I make a stumble. And that means that I am hearing, sometimes hearing the same sentence over and over again, especially if it's one that I can't get through. And that makes me conscious of uh, a different 
type of thing with the book. And you're much, that's, I think, part of why you're much more likely to catch mistakes because you can't tune out and just go. You have to, you have to really be focused on the words. So let's talk about how you use Scrivener. How long have you been using Scrivener? I have been using Scrivener at least a decade. I'm not actually sure when I started using it, but at least a decade. When I started using it, I thought, oh, this is going to be too complicated and uh, and kind of bounced off of it, but I could see its use. So what I did was I took a, a novella that I needed to revise and put it into Scrivener and then broke it into scenes as a way to kind of ease myself into it. And now I compose directly in it. I use it for my outlining. So, um, so I start using it from early in the project, kind of the brainstorming phase. And so what, what sort of features do you use most in Scrivener? You talk about outlining. What I use is the, um, the synopsis, the outline thing. So my, my basic process is that I will do a single uh, document where I come up with kind of a synopsis and then I break it apart into individual lines and then I use the um, uh, start new document here feature. So I then break those individual lines into individual files. And then I take those files, which is kind of my general idea of, I think this is the shape of the novel. And, uh, and then I set up in the, um, in the binder, what I do is I set up uh, often something like the seven point plot structure, or like when I did Valor and Vanity, I did a, that was a, cl a classic heist, uh, Jane Austen writes Ocean's Eleven was my pitch for it. <laughs> and um, and so I set up a, a heist um, heist folders, like these are the beats of a heist or seven point plot structure. It's like, here's the pinch point, here's the plot twist, you know, all of those things. And then I take that, the, that list of here are the beats that I'm having happen in the novel and plug those in to the appropriate spots. And then I look for holes. So that allows me to think about the balance of the, the novel really early and look for, oh, look, you aren't applying additional pressure to your protagonist here if I'm, if, if it's appropriate for that book or wow, it's, you are in the hook phase for a really long time. Let's see if we can move a conflict point up sooner. Um, so it allows me to look for those big, big patterns. Uh, and, and then I will, kind of uh, often just put a placeholder in like uh, something goes wrong here and let myself discover what that is later. Sometimes I put the thought in ahead of time. It depends on the book. Some like the spare man, I did all of that work and was trying to do refining of, because there were big gaping holes and was trying to refine them and realized that the thing that I love about the, the thin man movies um, and any murder mystery actually is watching the detective do their detecting what and the conversations that they have with the, the suspects. So, um, so with, with the spare man, I, uh, I did much more of free writing on that than I thought I was going to, and just had big tent posts that I was aiming towards and used Scrivener to keep my eye on where the tent post was that I was, was heading towards next. But all of the, the stuff in between the tent posts was was very much discovery written. So you really are a planner, not a pantser. Generally, yeah. Um, the spare man is one of 
ironically for a, a murder mystery is one of the the ones that I I did very much seat of the pants. Um, I followed the Agatha Christie method of giving everyone motive and opportunity and then deciding at the end who the actual criminal was. Did you know how the murderer was when you got started or did it only come after about a half or two thirds of the book? It came later. Um, I had two prime suspects um, and then narrowed it to one of them very fast. The The big thing that I wasn't sure about as I was going through was um, how many people were collaborating with them. So that was that was one of the big pieces that I was like, mm, uh, let me figure that out. No spoilers. No, no spoilers. No, I'm really good about talking around spoilers. Um, so that was that was something that I had to do after the fact and go back and clean stuff up. So let's talk about NaNoWriMo. You've done NaNoWriMo several times. You've given talks about it. NaNoWriMo is coming up. So this podcast episode is going to be out in the first week in October. And I think some of our listeners will be preparing for NaNoWriMo. Can you give tips on what people should do to get ready for NaNoWriMo? Yeah. So it depends on what your goal is. And I think one of the things that you should think about before you sit down to do NaNo is why are you doing it? Are you doing it because you want to participate in the community? In which case, make sure that one of the things you do is hop onto the forums and sign up and, and find out where meetups are. Are you doing it because you want a finished book? Um, like I write my novels during NaNo. Um, most of them. You start them all in NaNoWriMo and then you do your revision and editing afterwards. Yeah. Spearman was, is a, absolutely, that is a NaNoWriMo novel. Um, okay. Start it in November. <laughs> um, the pressure helps me. The community helps me. So for me, I do pre-planning before I get in. I come up with my outline. I have my tent posts. I have my, you know, uh, I, I will do some, um, exploratory free writing before I get in so that I, I kind of have a sense of voice. If it were my first nano, I would do that exploratory free writing as part of nano just to, to count for words. Um, but I, I try to have a really good sense of what the project is so that when I start, I can go and I have momentum and I don't have to stop to figure things out. But if I'm doing it to, to see if I can, like, if I just want to know if I can write 50,000 words, then, then what I would do would I would, I would think about what are, what areas of craft do I want to explore? And I would use it as an opportunity to explore craft. So I would go in and say, okay, you know what? This today, I'm just going to, I'm going to write the scene that I was planning, but I'm going to really think about dialogue today and I'm going to let everything else kind of float. And the next day I'd be like, okay. Yesterday, I concentrated on dialogue. So today, I'm going to really concentrate on description and just, you know, shorthand my dialogue. If it's if it's not beautiful prose, I'll, I'll fix it later. Uh, but mostly what I would say is just, you know, think about what is going to be joyful for you and then chase that. Marie Kondo, your way through NaNoWriMo. <laughs> I think one of the things about NaNoWriMo is that 50,000 word target is flexible. I'll link in the show notes to an episode with Brand Faulkner, the director of NaNoWriMo that we did last year. And he says, it's just for people to write, to have that goal is helpful for some people to know where there's a finish line. Yeah. So I usually write like the first two thirds to, to three quarters of the novel during NaNo. Um, I actually don't know how long the spare man is. It's a, well, at least 90 K, um, 90,000. So, um, so I do that, that first kind of burst 
in, uh, in nano. And then my process is that I sit down and I read through what I wrote during nano, adjust my direction, adjust my outline, and then continue writing at a, a slower pace, partly because I'm starting to t wrap things up and that's often harder. And partly because without the, the time pressure, um, I have the, the luxury of slowing down. But I think what's important is that people participating don't have to finish a novel. It's go for those 50,000 words, which is either a short novel or half two thirds of a longer novel that helps you build up momentum, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also you can do beginning, middle, end and hit something that's 50,000 words, knowing that you skipped a hard scene because you don't have the chops yet, or you just didn't want to, it was slowing you down. Um, knowing that you're going to add a subplot knowing that you're like you you shorted the description that you just wanted to get the arc there's there's no correct way to do nano rhymo and it's easy to do it like that with scrivener because you've got all the different elements in the binder and you can leave as you said placeholders mhm mm yeah so it it is uh i have definitely done that uh insert yoga scene here <laughs> Okay, I'd like to ask my guests if they have a book or two that they can recommend to our listeners. Do you have any favorite books or books that you've read recently that you can recommend? Knowing that you have a lot of listeners who are also writers, I'd love to recommend Craft in the Real World by Matthew Salises. It's a wonderful look at the way writer workshops are constructed and some ways you can approach them differently. It's got some exercises at the back. Highly recommend that. And then for fiction, I'm actually going to recommend an indie book uh, called Unrelent Unrelenting, and it's by a pair of authors, Marie Parks and Jesse Honard. Um, it's uh, it's fantasy, um, it's a thriller, it's uh, it, it's a young woman looking for her sister. There's a, a whole murder mystery aspect to it, and it's a really compelling story about. Uh, about what it means to lose someone that you love and how how it is hard to let go of them of them okay mary robinette kowal thank you very much for joining me <laughs> thank you so much for having me if you like the podcast please follow it in itunes or your favorite podcast app to learn more about scrivener go to scrivenerapp.com join us next month for another conversation on right now with scrivener <laughs>